This is the Quantum Biology Podcast, where we break down the practical health applications of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Alexander Wunsch, a physician, chronobiologist, researcher, and professor. Based in Heidelberg, Germany, he is known as the Light Doctor, and he has for decades been one of the world's top researchers and teachers on the effects, both good and bad, of light on our human biology. From light bulbs to sunshine, he tells us everything in this fantastic episode. So, Dr. Wunsch, for people who who are new to the uh, idea of light and health, uh, I know for many years, the only time I thought about circadian rhythm was when I was traveling overseas and became jet lagged. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it was not a topic that I spent any time thinking about. How would you explain to somebody um, who is in that situation the importance of circadian rhythm to our to our health? Um I would I would probably start with bacteria or algae um, and try to explain that even the bacterium has to attune the inner clock to the uh, solar cycle to the cycle of uh, sunlight and nighttime to the light uh, or bright conditions and darkness since our planet spins in 24 hours it is mm, essential for every creature mm, which is not living in the depths of the of the ocean mm, but uh, exposed to sunlight during daytime uh, to adapt mm, themselves to this uh, naturally given cycle so this is nothing new um, the opposite is is true it's one of the eldest uh, facts which have been given by our universe by our cosm- cosmos uh, and um, it w- only was possible to um, come into uh, life to um, produce a uh, metabolism to live was only possible um, after being able to adapt to the bright daytime and dark nighttime cycles. Yeah. Um, When you think about a plant, for example, the plant which knows that the sun comes up at 7 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock, whenever, um, and can prepare the metabolism to that uh, sun rise, this plant will do a much better job. And the same is true on a, on another level, on a different level, for every creature and, of course, also for humans. I muted myself. What happens uh, when we disrupt those rhythms as we do with artificial light, especially in the, in the nighttime? Um, a lot of things might happen. The the attunement and the the co-working, the the synchronizing mechanisms in our metabolism. When you think about the clockwork, 
um, every single wheel is uh, attached to the other and linked to, to any other wheel directly or indirectly. And if you disrupt this chain uh, of, of different reactions, then uh, you need at least much, much more energy to maintain uh, the function to uh, take care of all the tasks. And when you think about just the fact that you have about 100,000 chemical reactions per second in each single body cell, you can imagine that uh, this is the start of, of a, a logistic task which, which starts within each single cell but uh, is also linked to the cellular uh, systems, to our whole organism. And to bring this into synchrony um, is crucial for um, saving energy, saving um, channels for informational tasks, and so on and so on. So, um, yeah, the you, you could point out any uh, any aspect of our uh, metabolistic activities, for example, and you could be able to tell that it has an impact. But if you want to have some more specific uh, answers, we could go into this, of course, um, quite easily. But uh, Instead of me talking and talking and talking, I will give you the chance to interrupt uh, and um, adapt your question and uh, specify what, what I should explain on this. Again, the micro. Are there any um, health conditions that have become, well, well, there are many chronic health conditions that have become much more common um, in the last you know, decade or two. Are there any that you see as being very specifically correlated with with uh, disruption in our natural light cycles? I, I would say um, almost every chronic um, disorder or chronic condition can be linked, more or less directly linked to um, chronobiological disruption. Um, I think what, what we would call uh, civilization-associated disorders or diseases, they are all linked to um, bad habits with regard to lighting and light exposure. And so that has led you to the study of photobiology. Could you ex could you explain what is happening? Um, I think you know most people understand that a plant is not going to thrive if you put it in the wrong light environment. Um, however, for some reason, we have not carried that over uh, when it comes to humans. So, could you explain what happens with human biology? when we are exposed to the sunlight, which we were made to be under? First of all, I would like to um, emphasize that if, if you have a kind of robust organism, um, and we can talk about the human organism as a robust organism, 
compared to plants. For example, when we are talking about light dependency, uh, the plant will not thrive without light because the plant um, depends on on the um, generation of, of energy by transforming light photons into metabolic energy. Photosynthesis would be the key word here. Um, so there is a direct dependency and um, humans have evolved on the basis of plants. So we could uh, free ourselves in our behavior uh, in many different ways and not uh, it, it has a reason why humans are dominating the planet at the moment. Uh, this is because we have so much, so so many degrees of of freedom, also with regard to our dependence of of light. So we can live in darkness, and uh, other um, creatures like horses, for example, they could work uh, in down in the mountains uh, and for for years, for example, without showing direct uh, disorders but this is the problem on the other hand if you talk about plants you immediately will learn that they uh, will not thrive if there is no light and um, our um, higher degree of freedom is also a challenge because some of us seem to think we are not dependent on on any lighting condition because we can live in darkness but uh, we will not thrive in a way our metabolism will not work optimally if we are not um, submitted uh, to to this uh, light dark cycle and um, nowadays when we talk about sunlight you know there are two uh, opposite positions mm -hmm. One would say you have to cover yourself and shield yourself from every ray coming from the sun. And on the other hand, the opposite position would be take as many light as possible, as many sunlight, as much sunlight as possible. Uh, I think both positions are not correct because, um, as always, the truth lies in the golden uh, middle between these two extremes and w when when we ask ourselves are are humans um, nocturnal creatures or diurnal creatures uh, this would be the the first question if you can answer this question in one or the other way you get uh, a better answer to to the question, what importance does the sunlight have for our um, well-being, for our health? So what is so this the spectrum of the sun when it um, interacts with our biology? What is happening? So. Sure. Uh, the sunlight itself uh, is not uh, responsible for the beneficial effects in the first 
goal, I would look at it from the other side. Sunlight is a kind of natural constant, which has been there before the first living creature had, had evolved in the past. And so the spectral composition of sunlight did not significantly change over the last uh, billion years. And this, this is the, the main feature, is this constant spectral energy distribution gave birth to life itself and uh, enabled all creatures exposed to sunlight over the millions and millions of years to adapt themselves as optimally as possible to this exact spectral distribution. And the spectral distribution is uh, modulated by, for example, climate, it's modulated by the seasons, it's modulated, of course, by the rotation of Earth uh, with regards to day and night cycle. And, and these um, time-associated patterns are light-associated. And our organism has learned by during the course of uh, evolution to adapt uh, itself optimally to this spectral distribution, which means if we have a short day and a long night, our organism learned it must be winter. And for the opposite condi condition, if there is a long day and a short night, it must be summer. And the elevation angle of the sun uh, during winter time differs significantly from, from the elevation angle during summer time. And this has uh, uh, the highest impact on the, um, on the amount of ultraviolet B radiation, <clears throat> which is the part in the spectrum giving us the sunburn on one hand, but vitamin D on the other hand. And vitamin D is not uh, some, some uh, medical wonder potion in a way. It is a substance produced in our skin to adjust all the rest of the body cells which are not exposed directly to sunlight to the solar condition of high concentration of UVB, which means summer as one example. And what what uh, is the consequence if we have 12 or even 16 hours of solar exposure during summertime, depending uh, on where in the world you are located at? The body has to know. And the body not only has to know by seeing the light, the body has to adjust to the, to the consequences of constant uh, incident sunlight, for example, has to save uh, water, has to keep water inside in, in, in order to enable the organism to sweat. If you have no sweat, if you have no water for sweating available, uh, your organism will overheat. It's just that simple. So. All the, the 
adaptation processes which um, happen under the HUD uh, are not <clears throat> mentally understood by by any human. It is a kind of automatic. You don't have to think about the gear you are driving in. Your organism, um, the vegetative system, takes care of that. But the vegetative system, in order to balance parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, activities, has to know what's going on in our environment. And the most important factor in the environment is... Mm, yeah, let's say uh, uh, oxygen is is uh, probably more important, but for the mm, optimal attunement of our vegetative system, light has the the highest value or almost the the highest importance, and this is the reason why we do not only evaluate um, light visually but also um, via non-visual pathways. And these non-visual path pathways can be found within our eye, in the retina, starting evaluating the content of blue. But we also have signaling pathways starting in the skin. And here we not only have hormones or precursors for hormones like the um, like the vitamin D, there is also a signaling pathway with regard to stress hormones, uh, which goes along with the signals coming from the eye. And we also have um, nervous um, signals coming from the skin, coming from from the, uh, the the heat, for example, which is which evolves when when uh, sunlight acts upon skin and so on. So we have multiple pathways, multiple cha channels, which feed the information into our integration system um, in the brain, in the vegetative system, in order to take care that all the automatic processes uh, uh, would... would uh, act as they optimally should. Thank you. This is so, this is such fascinating work. Um, how do you see your work being applied to, um, to practical health choices? And do you see your work starting to be um, implemented by family physicians and um, preventative medicine practitioners? I think uh, in inter integrative uh, or complementary medicine, it, it's not uh, so far apart from, they, they are already on the kind of uh, similar wavelengths. Um, naturopaths naturally have uh, a better understanding of the importance of uh, living close to nature. I think the problem um, at the moment is 
more that mm, the mm, school medicine on one hand, but also the mm, the standardizing bodies, uh, the governmental bodies that they are living in the world in a world which is uh, thirty years up to fifty years behind. And I think this this is the um, biggest problem with regard with regards to to light. And here we we have to discriminate between natural light on one hand, like like sunlight. Um, you you can tell from from these uh, precautious um, instructions that you should not go into the sunlight. This comes from. Uh, from the old world in a from the last uh, century in a way but from the second half of the last century because in the first half of the last of the 20th century sunlight was the almost the most important uh, biophysical uh, means to to cure uh, uh, diseases of darkness but then some some with with the with the rise of, um, of antibiotics, this kind of changed, and I think every every person uh, who wants to uh, to live kind of natural life with less medication, um, with less artificial uh, environment, they. For sure, will understand that it's important to behave correctly with regard to sunlight. But what's probably even more important is that most humans uh, in in the Western uh, industrialized societies mm, don't even have the chance to uh, to get mm, the right dose on a, of sunlight on a regular basis. Because they are um, locked in into very artificial conditions. Um, to to make a contrasted uh, expression for it, uh, many of us live like stable rabbits, because their um, time frame doesn't even give them the chance to go out in into the sunlight at high noon, for example, for just uh, 20 minutes because they have no chance to undress and to expose large parts of their body um, to the sunlight when it's there. So they are exposed uh, to artificial light sources instead. And this on a quite constant basis, mm, I think 90% uh, will live mm, of people living indoors are exposed to artificial light and are living indoors 90% of their lifetime. And so the impact of the artificial light sources, I would say, is even more problematic. And and we have a kind of... Um, we can say that the fact is we have not enough true, unfiltered, natural sunlight. And on the other hand, we have much too much um, cold, artificial, uh, um, 
light surrogates, artificial light, overdose of artificial light, and um, almost no exposure to unfiltered natural light. And this makes the problems. Yes, absolutely. And I, many of the people in our community are, so we approach it, there's two pieces. The, the first piece is, how do I structure my life so I'm spending more time outside? And then the second piece is, how do I manage my indoor environment so that when I am inside, I'm reducing the a level of harm that I'm causing myself by the lights that I choose? So for, for the first part, um, for example, in uh, I'm Canadian, but we're living in the U.S., so I'm familiar with the um, guidelines here, which basically, as you say, are any exposure to the sun is bad. Don't go up, you know, wear, wear sunscreen every time you leave the house. So I'm curious, if it was up to you, if the American Medical Association had a complete breakthrough and realized they needed to change these guidelines and they asked you to write them, what would your, what would your recommendation be? Um, maybe what first came to my mind is to, uh, to change the, the recipe for producing suntan lotion or solar protection lotions, because um the uh, the composition is is based on the assumption that the bad uh, part in sunlight is the short wavelength part the uvb radiation so they filter out uh, almost all the uvb and um, let pass through the uva radiation I personally think that the UVA radiation is uh, respons mainly responsible for all the negative aspects in of sunlight exposure. Uh, but 20 years ago, um, the sci or 30 years ago, the scientists, the photobiologists, mm -hmm. worked under the assumption that UVA is harmless. And the bad part is UVB. Um, when when you look and and so the 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 the, um, the recipe for for uh, solar protection uh, creams and lotions, for example, takes this into account and filters uh, three times more efficiently in the UVB part compared to the UVA part. So UVA may pass through this this filter and UVB will be blocked. This means that you have a kind of mm, spectral change in sunlight. The, mm, the, the uh, photoprotection filters change the positive sunlight into something negative. You will not experience a sunburn, but you still get throughout the day of eight hours exposed to sunlight an overdose of UVA. This overdose 
will not be felt instantly. Uh, you will feel it years and uh, decades after exposure in terms of skin aging, in terms of the development of uh, precancerous uh, um, cells on the skin, uh, actinic keratosis, and even the the white skin cancer types. Um, and the same applies, by the way, to the filtering properties of windows, windows in your house, windows in your car. So, um, I think what what should be changed is the mm, the unfelt UVA overdosage, and this um, can only be changed by influencing the regulatory bodies, the Standard Institute for Standards, and so on, the, the communities which which give out recommendations. So you have no influence on, on the spectral transmission of window glasses until someone um, regulates it in a way that the the new kind of thinking leads to uh, property changes in new products. This applies to windows, this applies to suntan lotions, this applies also applies to to the recommendations how to deal with, with sunlight. For example, when you don't experience that an overdose gives you a sunburn, you will never learn that uh, sunlight is not only positive. And uh, I mm, saw too many biohackers uh, which uh, which looked like um, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't get the word the, the, the mm, they they are red like uh, yeah whatever they have been um, warning signs for overdosing the sun because they did not learn how to get the right dose and this is the problem that what we learn from from science if you are exposed on a constant basis in the right on the right dosage level sunlight is positive and if you are intermittently exposed in terms of overdosing every uh, 7 days or 10 days or so then sunlight will unfold its nasty properties but not immediately, but 10, 20, 30 years later. So you can't change it anymore. You cannot adapt anymore. And so, yeah, this this would be, uh, I, I would mm, change the, the recommendations in terms of not thinking that people are 
too stupid to understand how to do it correctly. And I would change the uh, composition for uh, um, sunlight protection um, preparations and I would change the spectral transmissions of window glass. These were the three immediate actions I recommend. This is amazing. So what I'm understanding is sunscreen, it's not it's not that it's un just unnecessary, but it, it could actually be making things worse. And that our body, if we when we start to turn red, we go in the sun and we start to feel like we're burning, that's our body saying, okay, we've had enough, go in the shade now. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, we were, I was not talking about uh, the, the, the finer details because the what what is actually preferred by the consumers are uh, sunscreen preparations which um, are absorbed by the skin so the the sunscreens the chemical compounds they are absorbed and the way they um, detoxify the um, problematic solar radiation is absorbing it in the chemical molecule but uh, these chemicals they produce uh, reactive oxygen species and uh, they produce these reactive oxygen species in a way that you have 10 to 100 almost 100 times more reactive oxygen species in the skin compared to uh, the concentrations you would have um, being protected by your body uh, produced melanin. If we compare the uh, photoprotection properties of melanin and the best um, chemical uh, photoprotectors, then we can tell that uh, melanin filters or absorbs 99.9% of the uh, radiation and producing just one hundredth uh, of, of the concentration of reactive oxygen species compared to the best uh, chemical compounds. Uh, we have available. So wearing uh, suntan lotion normally means that you have uh, massively increased reactive oxygen species production in your skin. Um, there are mineral-based sun solar protection substances which act like a mirror by reflecting the radiation. These are much, much better when you need the protection. But uh, from the cosmetic standpoint, people think, oh, I don't want to look whitish, uh, so it looks much better when I have something which uh, is absorbed by the skin and I don't have this kind of whitish glow. So if you're going for the cosmetically mm, optimal substance, you will additionally damage your uh, 
antioxidative system because you will overload the system which is not able to detoxify the mm, the oxidants generated by sunlight and i would not by the way say that we don't need any mm, preparations protect protecting us from sunlight because so many people uh, are traveling all around the world and uh, moving in a way that they ex expose themselves to environmental conditions they are not made for. And uh, it's still better to not experience a sunburn uh, compared to having a heavy sunburn because the sunburn itself, it's, it's really a, a very problematic condition. But... On the other hand, it will teach you that the sun has to be, sunlight has to be dosed uh, optimally in order to benefit from, from its properties. Right. So you mentioned um, the biohackers and there are, there are definitely people um, that, you know, I, I have come across who have moved to a tropical part of the world and spend most of their time in the sun all day long. So are you, um, are you saying that we, we need to be measured in our approach and adapt our sun exposure to our ancestral, um, lineage in terms of what, you know, the amount of melanin in our skin and things like that. And that being, even if you're not burned, but you're just like chronically super tanned, is that a problem? <laughs> this for uh, depending on on your uh, on your genetic uh, set, it might definitely become a problem. The problem with with uh, recommendations how to deal with sunlight is that you have to give these recommendations on a highly individualized basis and to to give a substantialized recommendation you not only have to know the skin type you have to know um, the genetic composition for certain for example for the melanin we have two at least two types of, of uh, melanin, the theomelanin and the eumelanin. The eumelanin is the black or brown, gives, gives you a brownish um, skin color. And the, uh, the theomelanin gives you a reddish skin color. So this is a genetic variation, this theomelanin found in the Celtic uh, type found in the fair uh, skin color types. And it's a, a photosensitizer by itself. While the, the uh, eumelanin protects you from uh, reactive oxygen species, the pheomelanin produces additional uh, reactive oxygen species in the skin. So if someone... I don't think that that uh, I think that most people have no idea about their 
about the ratio between eumelanin and pheomelanin in their skin. Because the you can have um, a brownish skin color or olive-like skin color and still you could have a significant amount of um, pheomelanin in your skin, which is just invisible because the the hue of the um, melanin is so much stronger compared to the color of the the, the more faded color of the mm, the pheomelanin. And so, as long as you don't know this ratio, you have no idea mm, how much unnecessary uh, reactive oxygen species are produced during sun, sun exposure. And so this is the problem that you cannot tell from the skin type. You cannot tell from the, the visual information you can get uh, how this ratio is in an individual person. And so uh, the, the only way is to find out um, on an individual basis what is the optimal um, concentration or exposure time uh, for sunlight. And this depends also on the local um, weather conditions. For example, if you are in a place where you don't have on a regular basis sunlight each and every day, it makes it almost impossible to uh, to find out what the correct doses could be, because uh, the, for example, what what we can refer to are the heliotherapeutically working doctors in the Swiss Alps in the first uh, three or four decades in the. 20th century and Rolier for example he was the master of heliotherapy and uh, the recommendation he gave was to start with five minutes for the feet and then next day five minutes for the feet and then pull up the the towel uh, up to your knees so that the feet will have two times five minutes and the area below your knees would have five minutes. And so he would pull up the, the towel every five minutes each day, exposing the feet at the third day for 15 minutes in total, um, the fourth day for 20 minutes, but uh, going up step by step so that you would gradually increase the dose taking into account that the different areas of the body uh, also exhibit um, a different sensitivity to sunlight. So he was very, very careful. Once you have a good tan, once you could build up a good tan without using suntan lotion, then it's almost impossible to experience the sunburn. So after three weeks of 
highly controlled uh, sun exposure, you can stay out in the sun all day long without the risk of experiencing a sunburn. But if someone with the skin type 1, with the Celtic skin type, um, when, when you look at this person like that, equipped with, with almost only theomelanin, uh, this person will not uh, achieve this dark tan which protects the person. So for if, if such a person has to stay outside, we, for, for persons like this, we, we need uh, ways to protect them. Um, clothing is for sure the best, the optimal protection. But there are situations where you cannot wear clothing uh, all over. And for these situations, it's good to have proper protection uh, possibilities which can be applied in a, in a way like a cream or like a lotion. A trip on a, a boat trip without the chance to adapt the weeks before, just as an example, or skiing, whatever. Yes, definitely. Yes, our family has been adapting to the sun over the last few years. And we learned the hard way that we needed zinc when we went skiing. <laughs> we did one day without it and uh, we thought we got quite badly burned. Um, because we had been in Mexico and we didn't use sunscreen. But when we felt we started to feel a bit that prickly heat, we would go in the shade mm -hmm. and we didn't. We just slowly tanned. We did not burn at all. But then one one morning skiing without protection, and we were the skin was peeling up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is the hard way. But uh, normally you would you would pass this information on in your family, and once you experienced this as as an adult, you would uh, protect your your kids and so on. But this has been. This knowledge has mm, this it just got lost when when you give out the information sun is bad, people will lose their specific knowledge they mm, collected over the the over generations. And this is where we are mm, at the moment, in a way. Yes. And so in our experimenting to get back under the sun it's possible we're we're overdoing it at times um uh just one um one brief question um i heard you speak about uh halogen light bulbs as being your preferred indoor light bulb mm -hmm. uh could you say a little bit about that if, and in terms of the best choice to light our homes so the the reason why I prefer halogen light bulbs, uh, I I would say light bulbs in general, true light bulbs which produce the light via heat, are uh, the best um, artificial light source because they produce a natural spectral distribution, um, and we are adapted. Our bodies are adapted to so-called thermal light sources, to light sources where the light is generated by the heat, which accompanies the light. So this is true for sunlight. This is also true for fire. And this is true for everything 
for every light source based on this principle, which lies in between with regards to the color temperature. And here, the heat and the temperature mm, has led to the expression to the term of color temperature. We talk about the color temperature of 5000 Kelvin or 6000 Kelvin for sunlight. And we talk about the color temperature of 1800 Kelvin for fire, as an example. And the, the, light, the light bulb, uh, the Edison light bulb with the tungsten filament inside, has a, a color temperature of 2700 Kelvin. And the halogen, the typical um, halogen light bulb, would go up to 3000 or 3200 Kelvin. And in this spectrum between 1800 and 5500 Kelvin, this, as long as the light source um, exhibits a true heat, then our body can optimally adapt to this kind of light. The body will be warned uh, in terms, uh, in cases of overdosage, by the accompanying heat, in order not to overdose it. And no one can tell. Uh, I didn't know that sunlight was there when you are outside and you feel the heat. You get an idea that something's there. And when you come too close to a light source, to a light bulb inside, you are prone to overdosage as well. So this is the the safety uh, property that the heat warns our body on a subconscious level uh, in in case of overdosage. This is what the one thing we are optimally adapted. And why do I recommend the halogen lamp? Because you can operate the halogen uh, lamp um, on direct current, and direct current will lead to zero flicker. Um, if you operate mm, the light bulb uh, at 110 volts or 115 volts, which is uh, the common voltage in mm, the United States, uh, then you have the 60 hertz cycle of sine waves, which uh, trans which transmit their uh, cyclic frequency pattern to the light bulb. So um, the light bulb operated on alternating current will um, carry an unnecessary additional information in terms of, uh, of the 60 hertz, which means the light bulb flickers or pulsates 120 times per second. It's too fast for our eyes to realize, but uh, the the strobe uh, stroboscopic lines on, on a on a turntable in former times would give you a kind of standing still impression of of these strips. So with certain um, measuring tools in one or the other way, you can. Um, demonstrate that that uh, alternating current-driven light carries this flickering property. And I was uh, 
quite aware of this this problem with flickering lights since many many years. Uh, I, I was annoyed by the tubes in the classroom, for example. In the first four years in my school, we had we still had incandescent light, and then um, uh, when I changed school, we suddenly had this fluorescent. Uh, light from these tubes and I felt constantly annoyed by this flicker because personally I am sen sensitive to it other people uh, are not and uh, some can adapt to it so in a way it is a learning process maybe it's also a learning process to filter out the awareness but this was never my interest. I always wanted to make it even clearer. So I built myself um, tools to to measure it and to demonstrate it as well. For example, a tool which transforms the flicker into an annoying sound. And if you suddenly realize that the light source, your, your computer screen or your light bulb, uh, gives a, a constant buzz uh, and you you can hear it you immediately will say no i don't want i don't want to have a light source which is giving me a buzz uh, if i can choose between the buzzing annoying uh, thing or a light source which gives just a, a very subtle mm, white noise and when you when you direct this measuring tool to sunlight, you will hear the same subtle white noise because sunlight produces the subtle and mellow white noise. Uh, the, the candle flame will produce this very subtle noise and the, an incandescent lamp, a halogen lamp driven on a clean, DC uh, power supply behaves exactly the same. And so uh, even if someone has no idea about the physiology, about the, the physics behind it, if you just can listen to the different light sources, how they sound, by a direct uh, transposition of, of the, the flicker into audible signals, the decision is just just simple and easy and uh, a little a sm a small kid can discriminate there is a difference in quality between this and that and so yeah this this is what i can recommend take your for example your smartphone on a uh, with the video setting and once you see any kind of discontinuity in the picture kind of flicker uh, this is a sign that that you're uh, operating the light source uh, under conditions which mm, give you uh, an other artificial informational part which is not necessary for uh, providing optimal visual conditions it is um, caused by the idea of the industry to make it even a little bit cheaper, the product they are selling to you, 
So from the technical standpoint, we are able today to produce flicker-free uh, artificial light sources. And um, this is, for example, one uh, aspect, one parameter where I can say, uh, I was pointing this out 30 years and 20 years ago already, and the, the lighting industry just ignored it or asked for proof or whatever. But in the meantime, some Chinese companies, uh, some from, from the East, from the Far East, they they just did it. While the, the, the European companies, they were still um, fighting for their old standpoint, ah, flicker, we have no proof that it, that it's a problem, so we can go on like we ever did, always did. And some uh, of the engineers in the Far East, they picked up uh, the information somehow and they started to produce flicker-free lights or artificial light sources. So even some of the LEDs are flicker-free. <clears throat> the problem is that uh, the normal pe the normal person has no, has no means to find out which one is the good one, which one is the bad the the bad one. So if you have a good clean DC source with twelve volts and uh, a halogen lamp, a low voltage halogen lamp with twelve volts driven on DC, you can be absolutely sure that you are on the safe side. Thank you. That is incredibly helpful. And so these they don't advertise that it's flicker-free. You'd have to just figure it out by videoing it with your phone and seeing if it has the... You see, some advertise with, with the, uh, the term flicker-free, but when you measure it, you find out they have another idea of flicker free. Um, they they mean it's it's reduced in flicker, but it's not flicker free. Depending on the way you are measuring it, the lighting industry has uh, devices which um, integrate the signal the signal in a way and transform the signal, and then they have their their uh, mathematical terms and. Uh, definitions and and uh, limits uh, which which are changing from year to year and so on so they come to the conclusion their instrument says it's flicker free when i transform the light modulation into the audible sound and i still hear a buzz i have to say no it's not flicker free it might be flicker reduced but it's not flicker free and the industry is still fighting for for the limits um, which give them the chance to make their products again a little bit cheaper but a lot worse. Thank you. I know you have to run. Is there is there any last um, any last words you want to share? Is there any research you're excited about or things that you're thinking about um, lately that you would want to just quickly share before we hang up. Um, I came across um, a paper from Zimmermann and Reiter, um, which deals with mel melatonin, 
with this hormone of darkness. But it's a, I think, 21 pages long paper. When I mm, read it, I thought, wow, he is kind of proving things by referencing them, which I felt uh, 20 years ago and found some proof um, over the years. It's, it's exactly what I was talking about uh, in the last 25 years. And uh, it highlights the importance of near-infrared radiation. And it gives a completely different and new view upon melatonin and the role of melatonin inside each single body cell because it is produced not only during nighttime but also during daytime in each single body cell but it doesn't even reach the bloodstream so you can't measure it. So our ideas of melatonin um, have to be revisited under the, the latest findings and uh, a very good overview you will find in this um, article about the optics of the human body from Zimmerman and Reiter. And this is something I would highly recommend. Thank you so much. I actually have had people asking me for papers on non-local melatonin. And so that is extremely, extremely helpful. Thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Meredith, for I appreciate it. Ask, asking uh, pleasant questions. <laughs> Thank you. And do you do you teach classes on these topics, or do you just work with with students on their dissertations? I did work with students uh, until two years ago, but mm -hmm. uh, I kind of retired. But um, I'm pondering on the on the idea to maybe uh, create uh, an e-learning uh, or blended learning course. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's premature at the moment. Uh, but maybe in the future there will something available. Well, I I could bring you a. a a group of students if you when you're ready to teach oh right. I will. um our community is it's um really it's a lot of health practitioners and they're mm -hmm. very keen to find ways to have this information in in a curriculum that they can move through um mm -hmm. and feel you know because right now it's all a self-study course in in this area uh for practitioners and um, academic might be different but um so yeah. I will I'll yeah. get back to you once I'm ready. Okay, please do. <laughs> yeah, I will. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who practices from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely take a look at the Applied Quantum Biology Certification, a six-week study of the science of the new human health paradigm and its practical application with your patients and clients. 
We also love to feature graduates of the program on this very podcast. Until next time, the QBC.